When someone like a mother is suddenly gone, she's not the only thing that's lost. Many other losses occur as well. Albion lost her appetite, and no eclair or meringue or black forest or vanilla slice could tempt it back. Beatrix lost her son. Of course it was still there, still hanging in the sky, but it had little to do with her anymore. The moon had become her companion as she lay awake at night. Carmen lost her oddness. Before it was strange how she was quiet when her sisters were loud, but now the three girls and the father sat around the table in silence. Welcome to Not In Print, a podcast from Currency Press, the performing arts publisher, where we speak to playwrights and theatre makers about their work, their ideas and their inspiration. I'm Caitlin Doyle-Markwick and in this episode I spoke to Finnegan Crookemeyer. Finn is one of Australia's most prolific playwrights for children and young people. He's had 94 plays commissioned and his work has been performed all over the world. The reading you just heard was from Finnegan's play This Girl Laughs, This Girl Cries, This Girl Does Nothing which is one of five plays in his new collection for We The Young, published this year by Currency Press. So I uh, began writing for young people as a young person. I think I think that was where uh, the most literal kind of relationship to that kind of work at the start was the fact that I myself was a teenager and I was um, working in a very amateur but fun and experimental fashion with colleagues of mine and we were trying to make work as young people some of which was to access young people and then uh, and then I started getting commissions uh, from youth theatre companies so my first professional forays were writing plays for young audiences and generally performed by young young actors um, but that said, to be honest, I had a different goal in mind, or I thought it was the goal that one is meant to have, which is that eventually I would I would kind of overcome that stage of things and then be writing for adults. And that would mean that one is a fully fledged writer of plays. And then I had this weird epiphany where I went to the Azatej um, Congress, which was held in Adelaide that year, but it's held every three years in some part of the world. And it's a coming together of all children's theatre practitioners from so many countries it's really wonderful and and so much wonderful work is shown and while I was there surrounded by these colleagues and mentors and watching this work which was such high caliber I realized the beauty the inherent beauty in that work and the fact that the passion for me lay in writing that work and the fact that some of my best memories about what it is to be an audience member sitting in an audience and bearing witness and being changed or affected or or driven mad or or given pleasure by a piece of theater had been as a young person so i thought well maybe this is something to really double down into and really work on and so it's been this lovely evolving thing over the last 15 20 years trying to trying to work out how to write plays for young audiences yeah reading these plays i kept thinking how much fun it would have been to write them all these you know, fantastical worlds and situations that your characters get themselves into, whether it's using a lighthouse as a submarine or having casual chats with giants. Um, I suppose with writing for young people, you can kind of do away with some of the constraints of writing solely for an adult audience and characters where you have to adhere to a certain level of logic and believability. Um, So when you go to write something for young people, do you have to kind of switch out of adult mode and go into that unconstrained whimsical mindset 
Yeah, I think exactly. I think almost counterintuitively, that kind of not not magical realism so much, but just that sense of permission is is often for lots of artists our kind of base state. It's it's the place that, and just for lots of people, you know, artists is is a term bestowed upon a few in terms of career, but but everybody thinks in that way or can think in that way. And I think we're all given to times of whimsy and times of permission and, and launching ourselves off into into these kind of heightened states of what a story could hold. And actually the imposition is one of curtailing that and 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 it kind of yeah, I, I don't know if it's really a credit to adult theatre that there's so much an absence of that or it's seen as something removed from that to have these fantastical properties or permissions because I think a lot of adult work um can be driven forward by that same kind of exploration. Um and because what a one of the things I like about children's theatre is that it kind of knows itself to be allegory. So it, it tells big stories about big worlds with properties that maybe you don't encounter every day on your street. But within all that imagery, all we're seeing is humans interacting with challenges or being spurned on by love or, you know, very knowable human um, objectives. And, and so it's lovely to write all the big... Um, worlds that I want to and kind of go to all these crazy places but at the heart of it all is very simple human needs and and that's been the exercise I think for the last few years with me learning how plays for young audiences work like if you if you lack that central humanity that's when a play stops kind of carrying across to an audience whether they're uh, children or adults if it's too fantastical and it's not latching on to so yeah, that very basic existential stuff that we all recognise, then then it's too easy. Mm, it's it's funny, isn't it? Actually, like adults, particularly those of us who work in theatre or the arts, often have to work very hard to access that part of themselves that some people call, I guess, our inner child. Um, you know, these parts that we've learned to block out for most of our waking lives, if only for pragmatic reasons. Um, and yet you felt earlier on in your career that you needed to sort of progress to writing adult plays as if writing for young people wasn't serious or thematically rich enough which you've you know found to not be true and I've heard you say elsewhere that you don't like to silo adult and children's writing um so do you think these categories are unhelpful yeah like even the notion of bracketing a group of humans together because they're in a certain age group is it's kind of redundant because, you know, the experience of, of this five-year-old compared to this five-year-old or this 28-year-old to this 28-year-old, there's so much circumstantial stuff that would inform who that person in the audience is. And if I just go, oh, because you're, you're around the same age, then your experiences will be the same or your view on life will be the same. I think that's a real bad supposition like it doesn't work like that life doesn't work like that so if I just write a story to be accessed indiscriminately by people and then each person chooses to take to it as they will and like the play or not like the play or care about that character or care about a different one then then that's how you access an audience you you don't guess for them you let them come into the story at the point when they feel ready it seems like in your work you really give a lot of trust to young people to be able to deal with dark or confronting themes and ideas. 
that you don't feel the need to sort of shield them from these things like loss and grief and broken families, which do come up in your plays. Um, so what's been your experience working with young people and seeing them grapple with these things? Has it confirmed that belief that you have in their resilience? Very much so. It, it's kind of, it's made me a little um, more questioning of certain structures. Sometimes you can encounter kids who say, oh, this, uh, I'm not sure if this work is for us because what they've been told about the type of work that they're supposed to access and, and the type of stories or lives that they're supposed to see in a piece of art delivered to them, um, which isn't to say anything about the child. The child, if, you, if they endure, generally encounters it as you know, any human would. And, and yeah, they do their own process of psychologically navigating it and, and doing what they need. But, um, but yeah, you can see definitely in different cultures, like if I, I have quite a work which is put on in the United States and, and there's, um, I don't know, there's some, some perspectives I think around how to treat a child and, and how to protect a child maybe, which means that often, you know, there is a little bit of um, delicacy around the way that they're presented with themes. And, um, and and I get it. I get that, you know, I, I am a parent as well. And I, I get that one wants to protect children from the rigours of the world. But also within the safety and the comfort of an art going experience, I think we're afforded this lovely opportunity to to tackle bigger themes, which aren't necessarily our themes, but which, you know, resonate with us maybe in different ways because of our experience. Um, but in a, in, a, in a safe enough and pretend enough and fantastical enough circumstance that we feel safe, even when doing um, emotionally an unsafe thing. And I think it's that back and forth between those two states which makes it feel so potent and so rich to, to sit with an audience, whether kids or adults, and watch them navigate terrain that feels murky and feels a little bit unknown. Um, but with the innate back of their head knowledge that the place they are in is a safe place. And, I, and that's what I love about the theatre, I think. Um, do you think being a father has changed your writing? Do you get lots of ideas from your son? Uh, yeah, I get, I get a lot of, um, of worry as well. I picture Mo sitting in the audience and as I'm writing a work and I find myself um, paring back the level of risk because I picture him in the audience, I'm like, oh God, you know, um, would I wish this upon him, him having to navigate this, the, the death of a grandparent, you know, the orphaning of a central character, the, the being alone in a world full of giants, whatever it is. And then I have to fight against that. And that's a really lovely exercise as an artist and as a parent and as a human to go, no, okay, he... If I, if I really respect my son and, 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 I, and I do believe he holds these emotional tools, um, then I can show him this. I, can, I don't want to be gratuitous. I'll, I'll, I'll show any audience member the ideas in a way that feels like, you know, there's a journey to it and then a journey, more importantly, out of it. There's a redemptive quality to this. If I'm showing them hardship, it's, it's because I, I want to ultimately be telling a story about human triumph. You know, you get to this nadir in a life maybe so that you can be, you know, resurrected and kind of go off to the next wonderful place you do. And so I think about Mo in that context then and I force myself to, to tell him the story that I think he deserves to hear. Um, and that becomes a really, yeah, lovely exercise.
This is a story told. This may be by one, by some, or by many. We're all just made from pieces. There are the obvious ones, like like arms and hands and nose and toes and ear and rear and here and here. But there are other pieces too, ones you can't see pieces, like the ones that fill a head or fill a heart or fill a cardboard box that you pack with your parents. They decide to go live by the seaside, a box full of memories that weighs nothing but that's nearly too heavy to lift. Um, my robot was commissioned by a lovely company, Barking Gecko, in Western Australia. Uh, so the, the initial invitation given to me by the director, Matt, was that it be a play about robots, and not only about, but that the central character literally be a robot, which is such a lovely, mind-blowing thing. So, so literally, kids sitting in the audience encounter two human actors and then a robot actor who, who appears on stage and just blows my mind every time I watch that show or think about it. And so I have a, uh, a young girl character who is taken out of her lovely life where she knows everything and feels very safe and then just dropped onto, into a new beach community because her parents move house and she ends up there and she just feels really alienated, very foreign to this environment. She's from a snowy mountain and suddenly she's on a hot Aussie beach. She just feels out of her depth, but she is a tinkerer. She is an inventor. And so when there's an old junk shop below her house and one night a bunch of junk finds its way up to her room. And of course, being having the brain she does, she thinks, well, I'm gonna make a friend out of this. So she crafts a robot and then it becomes a two-hander. Then it's these two navigating a world together. And it's a story of finding your place with the friend you invent, but also the friend inside you. You know, the, the powers you wield already, even if you don't know them. Love was commissioned by Terrapin in, in Tassie, where I lived for 15 years. So a company I was interacting with a lot. And the director, Frank, gave me the really open and, and joyous invitation of writing a show about love. That, that was what it had to be. It, had to, it was called love and its central premise had to be love. And so I thought about a boy character whose community is threatened by a big impending disaster. And so he decides that he will collect everybody's love luggage, those things that you would protect from a storm. And then the snow, that really was born of nothing. It was, it was a desire to kind of write a fairy tale, that real sense of what a fairy tale could be. So, so an unassuming hero who encounters a conundrum that, that attacks his town and is forced to deal with it, but really doesn't want to, sees himself as the last person for the job, which is why he's the best person for the job. So him and a mute giant, they set out to navigate forests of evil blackbirds and and canyons that definitely can't be crossed until they manage to cross them and and witchy ladies in houses and it really becomes that kind of Hansel and Gretel um Brothers Grimm Christian Anderson kind of a tip of my hat to all those stories I love so that was really fun to write that one where words once were is kind of a older it's kind of 12 and up maybe or kind of uh, yeah, looking at kind of teenage characters, it's a dystopian future um, where 
the culture that exists in this time in the future is only allowed a specific 1,000 words. And if you use any words that are disallowed, you yourself get disallowed and you get um, made invisible. And so it's about a boy who follows these rules and uses only the words one should and, and understands how the city works. And then one day he hears a word that shouldn't be said and then he finds a pen that shouldn't be written with and then he spies out the corner of his eye a girl that he shouldn't see and he feels a love he shouldn't feel and everything just comes tumbling down. And uh, it's about how these, some of these big systems just can't hold us, you know, our innate, our innate wish for whatever we need for love and life and, and joy and a future. And then finally, this girl laughs, this girl cries, this girl nothing, this title is ridiculously long, is a, the play that I wrote for my friend in Argentina. And uh, so it's about triplet sisters who, who over 20 years navigate a full planet and discover who they are while doing, as you, as you talked about, these crazy things like riding in um, lighthouses under the sea which they use as submarines and, and fighting Viking armies and it, I just gave myself permission to write every event I could think of and it's a ridiculous story which came out in one draft and I still don't know kind of how it turned up but it was yeah written like 12 years ago and it's had lots of lives all around the world and been performed in theatres just for adult audiences with not a kid in sight and and it, it seems to be a play that's accessed by lots of people in lots of different ways. And so I don't ask too many questions about that play. It just seems to have evolved a life of its own, which is really nice. There was the goddess of the water who loved a man. And a man who could not see her because she was too great for him. But he liked to sing. So she made herself the river in autumn and carried the leaves past his house and he wrote odes to her. And he liked flatness, so she made herself the frozen water of winter, and he danced upon her in ice skates. He liked shiny things, so she glittered beside him in spring, and he fished from her all her secrets. And eventually he came to love her, and so she flooded her banks in summer, and pulled him into her and held him in a perfect embrace until she was peaceful and still. And together they floated away. Yeah, I think your plays can very easily be read as books as well. Um, you know, for anyone who just wants to read some great stories, even if they don't want to necessarily mount to a whole play. Um, largely because I guess there's often a, a kind of narrative voice alongside the dialogue, which is quite unusual. The, the characters themselves will be telling the story as they go instead of relying solely on the stage action. Um, and it's got that lovely quality of the way that kids tell stories where things just ping around and go on the in these wild unpredictable unpredictable directions where in the space of five minutes you go from being in the amazon to being in the alps in a in a way that can only really work with this narrative approach i guess no it, and it feels like another one of those rules or impositions that's placed upon like when, when I was maybe a younger artist starting out in, in writing works for young people, in the same way that I was told, oh, you can't have sad themes for young people. And I've just found that to be entirely untrue because, you know, they, they navigated it all really valiantly. Uh, I was also told there were issues around direct address. You know, kids will switch off. They need to have the freneticism of, of dialogue. It needs to be bouncing back and forth all the time. And I do appreciate some of that. And I put some of that into my works. 
But I also think a child can very much sit with a monologue if the monologue feels purposeful enough, if it has something to say, if there's a point to it. Um, I love watching kids kind of get lost in that kind of direct address being told a story thing because arguably in our, our culture, our, our, our thousands of year back history of what it was to share art, there's been a lot of sitting and telling stories and sitting and listening to a story and this lovely intergenerational gift of, of you know, a grandparent reading or speaking to a child and, and, and that way stories have endured for long, long amounts of time. And so I think there is some hardwiring in us which can settle into that kind of pace of hearing a story and feel all right with that. That being said, you do also give quite a few ideas um, in the book for staging your plays for uh, teachers and theatre makers, which I think is very helpful without being prescriptive. Um, but do you have any other advice for adult theatre makers and how to bring young people's stories to life? Uh, yeah, I mean, forget they're young. Like, uh, in the same way that, you know, sometimes I've done this before. I, I think we have certain tropes in our head. I've sometimes written a character and... I've realised because of the gender I've endowed them with, and it's quite arbitrary, I go, for this story it will be a, a boy protagonist and for this one it will be a girl. I find myself writing in different ways. I decide one is more of an emotional being and one is more of a, a kind of a encounter the world head-on kind of being. I'm doing these silly things that make no sense. So what I often do is then, having reached the end of a draft, I switch the gender. I go, OK, that was entirely easy. It took literally one word edit uh, uh, edit all if document and suddenly the boy has become a girl and it makes just as much sense and everything I was telling myself was completely redundant and tapped back into something silly that has no point being there and similarly whenever I go okay would a child do this I you know I just switch them into an adult character I write them doing the thing that I I would want to do if I were in that situation or whatever and I send them off on the adventure and then I go, oh, and now they're eight. And it's as easy as that. I think, uh, yeah, if you decide early on, no, these are the, the limitations I'm going to impose because of this age or this gender or this ethnicity or this circumstance or this physical capability or, you know, you're, you're cutting yourself short. It's exactly the opposite of what art making should be. If you really want to impose impositions, they can come later and you can do them in interesting dramaturgical ways where you're, you're making a character battle with the world because of, of some imposition, but you don't do it at the start because of something as, as yeah, unimportant as age, I think. Yeah, I remember um, doing theatre as a kid and there was much more of a sense of, you know, being able to play whatever character of whatever gender or age. Um, and I think that's a really lovely thing to foster and to be aware of. Um, and to and also, as you said, to, you know, as a writer, to go over your draft and strip some of those limitations that we might unconsciously impose in ourselves as we as we write, depending on what gender or age or ethnicity we think they're writing or whatever. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, it allows for a nicer experience in an indulgent way as an artist. I, I get to, to hear about the same story told in different parts of the world, in different circumstances. Another play, The Boy at the Edge of Everything, has been changed into The Girl at the every, Edge of Everything. The grumpiest boy in the world has become the grumpiest kid in the world for some performances. You know, it just, whatever it has to be, it, it ends up not mattering at all, but it fits for that ensemble that's performing it at that time. And that sense of ownership, that thing you alluded to of, 
of giving um, giving directors or teachers or ensembles kind of space and clues as to what they could do to tell this story, but also permission to tell it in their own way. That's one of my great pleasures. That's why I don't have too many stage directions or whatever. I like, I like to see the version of it that they present back to me and go, yes, I never thought of that. And that's way more interesting than I would have thought of because I'm not a director. And yeah, fair play to you. Like you've, you've made it yours now and, and that's the best version of a, of a production. And so it went until Beatrix was 14 and arrived one day at an ocean. Oceans have a way of turning up in front of you sometimes, just when you're getting sick of walking on solid ground and feel like a change. So it was with this one. I looked at the vastness of it. The humbling majesty of so giant a stretch of water. And I decided to tame it. An ocean is for sailing and to sail one needs a boat. So I'll be hammering and nailing and I'll keep myself afloat. That's a wrap. For We the Young by Finnegan Krugermeyer is available through Currency Press. We've also published three more plays by Finnegan, The Grumpiest Boy in the World, At Sea Staring Up, and The Violent Outburst That Drew Me To You. Head over to currency.com.au to grab a copy and check out the rest of our plays and performing arts titles. Thanks for listening to Not In Print. This podcast was produced by me, Caitlin Doyle-Markwick, with music by Grace Turner. Thanks also to Claire Grady, Clementine Gerber, Millie Fenton-Smith, Marie Fenton-Smith, Sarah Easterman, Edith Easterman-Kim, Madeline Baghurst and Alicia Gonzalez for reading the extracts from Finn's plays today.